Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, 102.1 FM, community radio station. Welcome wherever you are listening in Brisbane, its surrounds, or online. It's been one of the good things hearing from different people around the world, apparently, listening to Triple Z during times of isolation recently. And, of course, the importance of community media telling our stories, playing our art and talking about what's relevant to the average person and the local community goes on as important as ever. My name is Andy. I'll be with you for the next hour today on the Paradigm Shift and we're going to be chatting with Jess Hill, award-winning journalist, writing often about domestic violence and recently a publisher of the book See What You Made Me Do, which is a quite an in-depth study into domestic abuse in Australia. Um, I had a quite an in-depth talk, really, with Jess, so that will be most of our show today. We'll be chatting with her about the nature of domestic abuse, uh, about what causes it, what causes it on such a broad scale in our society, and ultimately, what can we do to try to reduce it, stop it, and make our world safer, our relationships better, um, and yeah, we <laughs> put an end to domestic violence. So that is what's coming up um, today. I guess I, it comes with a bit of a content warning. If you are somebody who has a traumatic past that could be triggered by somebody talking to uh, talking about domestic abuse, then perhaps this is not the show for you. Um, be aware of that and I guess whatever ways you have uh, of coping with that within yourself, bear that in mind. For everybody else, I think it's a, a super important topic. Um, it's not about not all men. It's a topic that affects all of society and something that we can all do something to try to change and so stay around and have a listen and of course if you are um, somebody who is in an, a relationship that is not healthy and is abusive in any way then there are places that you can seek support local services and the DV support phone number um, which oh, I don't have in front of me I'll have later on this show but 
um, yeah, don't suffer in silence, seek out support. Um, so without further ado, let's have a listen to Jess Hill. Could you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, so my name's Jess Hill. I'm the author of See What You Made Me Do and otherwise a journalist. You have done over the years a lot of journalism about uh, domestic abuse against women and See What You Made Me Do is the, the latest and longest example. Um, can you tell us a bit about the book? Yeah, so the book, um, you know, the book started really as a, as a way to explore what happens to women especially in abusive relationships and how it feels to go through it, what it looks like and why they make the choices they do. And then it kind of, it, it, it expanded far out beyond that original remit and it became a lot more about why do men particularly do it, um, but also how, what happens when men and women um, on both victim and perpetrator are interacting with justice system, what happens to children, you know, what what are we seeing in First Nations communities and then how are we actually going to go about fixing this? And so, you know, throughout the book, I really, I mean, the first few chapters are probably a bit heavy going, you know, there's not there's not a lot of light at those tunnels, um, but, but really from about halfway through, we're talking about, well, if this is a problem, what's the solution? Mm. Um, your book did win the Stella Prize for female authors in Australia, and one of the judges, Louise, oh, geez, I can't pronounce One of the judges, <laughs> Louise Swin, um, said that the book dismantles all the lazy old lies we associate with domestic violence. Um, mm. What are some of those lazy ideas? Lazy, I mean, one of the most the lazy ideas I had to dismantle for myself was the idea that, you know, women commonly make up allegations of abuse to get an advantage in the family law courts. Um, you know, things that, like, you know, the family courts are biased towards mothers. Ideas, even, it's even not lazy old ideas, but lazy old frames, you know. The fact that every time we hear about a relationship that's gone on for years where there's been um, domestic violence, the first thing you think is, why did she stay so long? Instead of, why does he continue to do it? And why wouldn't he let her leave? Um, you know, so it was, was like about, a lot of the time it was about flipping rather than sort of dispelling a lie or, or, or even myth-busting, although there is quite a bit of that, it's more about flipping the framework and go, why haven't you asked this question? Why, have, why hasn't the perpetrator been front and centre of your frame when you've been thinking about this issue? Why has it always been the victim's choices that you've interrogated? And why haven't you sat down and thought about what the, the perpetrator may have done to move the victim towards certain choices? So that's, that was really, and, you know, a lot of it, I, I really don't write the book from a position of, you know, you haven't been trying hard enough or you're all prejudiced or, you know, you've got horrible stereotypes. I'm writing the position, like the book, from a position of I've had these stereotypes. I've, I into domestic violence in 2015 as a reporter, having had no experience with it, A, personally or professionally, and I had to upend a whole bunch of my own sort of old ideas and just naive notions. <laughs> so a lot of, I think, part of the reason the book took so long, I mean, there's lots of reasons, but, but part of the reason was I was really determined to interrogate my biases 
and turn them inside out and upside down and wonder where they came from so that I could get closer to the reader and just and be there alongside the reader instead of just sort of wagging my finger at them. Hmm. Yeah, that's been one of the things that's been emphasised about the book is that you try to flip the view from uh, asking questions about survivors or victims to asking about perpetrators and, and why they do... But is there a balance there to wanting to um, give, to empower survivors to take action that can, you know, help themselves and prevent things and trying to, at the same time, look at perpetrators, why they do it and uh, try to stop it on that end? Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, my thing wasn't that I, I wasn't sort of crossed with the reader for asking those questions about victims. I wanted to show them first up that um, here's, here's why. Here's why they may not leave. Here's why they may not even realise it's abuse. Um, and now we've got that sorted. Let's move on. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I guess, you know, in terms of, you know, in laying out sort of options for people who are in abusive relationships and not just saying, well, they can't leave because it's too dangerous or they can't leave because the perpetrator does X, Y, Z. It's to really show people who are in abusive relationships and the people who love them as friends and family, what sort of mental processes happen as a result of domestic abuse. So the kinds of rationalisations that victims will make that will cover up for themselves that the abuse is going on. Mm. So things like there's, there's six really common rationalisations. I won't read them all, but just off the top of my head, the, a really strong one is I can, I can fix him. You know, I'm the strong one in the relationship and this man is badly damaged. Um, I will be the strong and and loving person in his life who will turn this around. I mean, that goes for male victims of domestic abuse as well. They they often have the same response to a woman who's, who's being abusive or may have substance abuse issues. You know, other responses can be, look, it's not really them. It's the fact that they lost their job or they've got this mental illness or they've got this drug addiction. And if, as soon as we get that sorted, their behaviour will change. Or it might be, I got married, I made that decision, and marriage and family is absolutely the number one thing in my life. And I will, I will not do anything to upend that. Like divorce is just an impossibility. So, you know, and that might be cultural, it might be religious, it might just be a personal value. It might be the fact that they grew up in a broken home and they never want to give that to their children. So they'll they'll kind of cover up the abuse in their mind because the idea of breaking up with that partner and losing a father um, for their children is just so incomprehensible that you sort of have to, you have to rationalise what's going on to make it okay that you're staying. So there's a lot of double think that goes on for victims of domestic abuse. And I think that by showing them what that double think is helps them to just reassess where they're at and whether they're making the right choices or just get give them some consciousness around it. But most of all, building their confidence because essentially domestic abuse is a crime of humiliation. Humiliation is absolutely at the centre, degradation, the overriding of someone's autonomy. So the best thing you can do for someone going through that is not to, like, tell them what they should do or, you know, or, or try to make them feel bad for not making the right choices. The best thing to do is build their confidence and build their self-esteem so they feel empowered to make choices that will be best for themselves instead of just always thinking about what their partner needs or wants. Mm. 
track there from Petrol Girls that is Survivor one of my favourite bands in the world at the moment, Petrol Girls you are on the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ and we're speaking with Jess Hill, journalist documenter of domestic violence stories and author of the book See What You Made Me Do one of the things that has been uh, talked about before. Anytime there's a high-profile case of domestic abuse or murder or something like that, there's this line of, oh, not all men are like this, that it's a, an individual issue of certain damaged men that do this. But most people looking at it with a, a kind of wider-angle lens across our society say, well, there's something uh, systemic about this that makes this. Um, yeah. What... Uh, what are the things that are, do you think that make this a systemic issue? Oh, gosh, there's so much. I think that, um, you know, at the heart of it, you're looking at issues around patriarchal masculinity. Um, the fact that, I mean, a lot of guys, unfortunately, in intimate relationships can find it very hard to be really closely emotionally connected. And part of the reason for that is that from the time that they're pretty young, there's, you know great family therapist in the States who says that around four or five, his name's Terence Real, says around four or five boys go through what he calls just this normal traumatisation process where the soft side of them or a side of them that may be perceived as girly or feminine is kind of shamed out of them, um, if not by parents, um, by friends, other family members. It's not even necessarily malicious. Sometimes it's just, you know, he gives the example of his son coming, you know, he loves to dress up as a good witch and, you know, at one stage he comes to the top of his stairs um, of his family home and he's dressed in this full regalia. He's about five and his bigger brother is down the bottom of the stairs with all his friends and they look up the stairs and this little boy, Alexander, is ready to, like, flounce down the stairs, so proud and so in his character and the little boys don't say a word. They're not, they, they don't call him any names but they just look at him with this, like, it's this look of shame. It's like, you can't do that. And the message is so clear that Alexander just turns on his heel, 
runs to his room, throws off his outfit, and then, you know, runs downstairs and they go downstairs and, you know, make swords and shields and all the rest of it. And he never dresses up again. And, you know, those those moments, like, we don't see, we don't sort of rate those moments as traumatic moments, but what they are is they're instructional moments. And so many boy, little boys go through this where it's like, you can't be soft, you can't be girly, and then what is girly? Oh, girly is being open and vulnerable and all those things. You know? So over time, you're getting this, it's basically we're training a lot of young boys and into men we find it very hard to be open and vulnerable and emotional in relationships. Now, if you like combine that with either really strong sort of gendered stereotypes about what men should or shouldn't get in relationships, um, if you combine it with other childhood traumas, um, if you combine it with a deep-seated sense of shame, um, where someone is and, and someone's absolutely terrified of being abandoned or left by their partner. Or if you combine it with, you know, um, really strong narcissism and entitlement, you can get men who are in other parts of their lives may seem, A, functional, B, totally, like, lovely people, but in the intimate space, they get triggered into this completely sort of, you know, Mr. Hyde-type personality, such that, like, they're in, in one state, in that intimate state, they are such a different person that people don't even believe they're capable of doing what they what they are doing. Um, so when people say not all men, well, of course, like, you know, lots of men will take that training <laughs> that they get and, and they will either resist or they, you know, they'll just sort of be a bit cut off in relationship but, but not violent or abusive. Um, but, you know, you have enough men for, for whom there are no warning signs to their friends and family being sadistic in their relationships and even ending up killing their partners and their children and when people say not all men it's like yeah but which men are not because actually when i go to the courts and when i when i talk to people who've been through these relationships i can't pick which guys would or wouldn't be like that and that's the point is that you know maybe not all men but which men are not which men are definitely not <laughs> that's and that's what's really confronting when you start looking at this is that the, the, the possibility of violence, the potential for violence, for control, etc., lives in so many men. Um, and, and it's scary for a lot of men who find themselves in that position. You know, some guys will call the men's referral service or, or go to counselling or whatever, absolutely terrified of what they are discovering in themselves. So, you know, that's what I think... The not all men thing. It's not just about. It's not. It's not just about sort of covering that up, and you know, a, a about and, and about not keeping women safe. But I want men to really start confronting this in themselves, so that they can a have better lives and b not end up ruining not only their partners and their children's lives, but their own lives. Mm. Yeah, in terms of how to approach this and try to fix some of these issues, do you think that there's a balance there that some things are trying to change systemic things um, society-wide and then there are some things that individual men need to to do? I mean, whether they are somebody who has abused a partner or not, is there are there individual responsibilities to to take on this issue? Well, yeah, 
yeah, I mean, I think that it's sort of like, so for me, you know, I look back on the last 40 or 50 years of feminism, right? So let's say since the second wave in the 70s. And women have undergone this process of relearning what it is to be a woman in the modern world, right? And, you know, what it is not to just live in your house and in your housework and to actually have ambition and to, to have a, a life independent of your family, that's those sorts of things. That was something, they were really hard lessons for women to learn and they, they, there was a lot of personal sacrifice involved in, and people, women being ostracised from their families in trying to define themselves in the modern world. And men, unfortunately, in the last 50 years have done a lot less of that. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like I think when the Me Too movement came along, it butted up against a masculinity that basically hadn't developed, you know, in 50 years. Um, with only bits and pieces that might have changed, a bit more involvement in parenting, a bit more involvement in the housework, but, but fundamentally unreformed. And so I think what men need to do now is to really take it upon themselves to modernise. And part of that includes, you know, like, hey, read my book. Um, <laughs> but not, not my book, but, you know, read, read you know, read feminist authors who who speak to men read people like bell hooks you know get a sense of the system that we're living in get a sense of the messages that you are being that you are being steeped in as a boy and now as a man and start to think about what do you identify with what works for you what doesn't work for you who are you you know start to really re-identify with yourself as an individual with feelings you know, with an internal world, not just as someone who's out there trying to make it or, you know, trying to do right by the family, you know, all the shoulds that men have, or I should be this successful by this age, or I should have the car, I should have the wife, I should have whatever. Like, who are you? I think a lot of men kind of stop really developing that internal part of themselves because they, it's like all externalised, you know, just got to focus on what you can achieve. And um, and it's and it's meant that I think now women, a lot of women are expecting a lot more from men in relationship, a lot closer intimacy, a lot greater emotional development, and I think a lot of men just feel like they're really unable to provide that because they don't have, they weren't brought up like that. So it's a big, it is a really big journey for men to go on now, and unfortunately, in the face of a culture that's quite angry with men for not already having done that. <laughs> So it can be very confronting for a lot of guys and they can feel quite confused. But, yeah, there is work to do. You know, we've all got work to do. I think a lot of women, um, I know myself, I have work to do in allowing my partner to be more vulnerable and more open and they're not feeling annoyed by that or not feeling like, oh, I just want him to attend to my problems. I don't. I want him to be the strong man, you know. There's lots of stuff that both men and women have to do, but men are, are doing a bigger catch-up game.
Marlene Cummins there with Pension Day Blues. Um, Marlene Cummins, a few years ago, there was a documentary made about her called Black Power Woman that was about um, some instances of rape within activist spaces. And, of course, it's something um, you have to be aware of in in all kinds of um, places. And as Jess Hill was saying before, it's not all men, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of uh, way you can define 
work out who it is and who it isn't. It's widespread across our society. The issue of sexual assault, of domestic abuse, um, and that is what we're talking about today on the paradigm shift. It's half past 12. Um, if this has been um, triggering for you, this conversation, um, do remember you can seek help. 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 is a 24-7 phone number you can call if you are in an uh, abusive relationship and there are other services you can seek out. Um, for now, let's keep going. We're chatting with Jess Hill, author of the book See What You Made Me Do, which is about domestic abuse. You mentioned the Me Too movement. Uh, a lot was made a bit of it in the media, particularly, I guess, because it's quite ho- high-profile celebrities often that were either being called out or telling their stories. Do you think that for the average woman in a domestic abuse situation, has the media coverage of this changed the situation? Look, I think the media has changed enormously even in the last five years. I think there's still bad reporting that goes on, no question, but people are right onto it now. Like, if you get some insensitive reporting to a domestic homicide, for example, you know, social media will be all over that report um, in a matter of minutes, and, and, you know, journalists and newspapers and broadcasters are being shamed um, for that, and, and rightly so. Um, I, I think that there's a lot more journalists who spend a lot more time trying to understand domestic abuse and reporting on it more sensitively. You know, there's still there's still a lot more to do in terms of understanding what the effect is on the victims and what domestic abuse actually looks like. Um, and that that's not just from the reporting side, that's from the justice system side, from policing. It's why I really try to put forward the idea that physical violence is only one component of domestic abuse and it may not even be a component in some relationships that really humiliation and control is the, the central locus point of a lot of abuse. Um, you know, so we are, we sort of, because the law does this, we put physical violence really at the pointy end of domestic abuse and we, we sort of judge how severe a, um, a domestic abuse is by the severity of the physical violence. Whereas that's actually often not what, not the victim's experience. They, they, the severity of the abuse for them is based on lots of other different elements. Isolation, whether they've been tracked and monitored through their phone or their car, through GPS systems or on, you know, spyware. Um, things like um, how how tightly have they been controlled? What was the level of degradation? You know, that's that's the stuff that that victims talk about um, first up. When you first talk to them, and often the physical violence, I'll tell you about later, but it's not the most important thing to them. So we've kind of got it upside down. Um, and I guess the, the biggest thing I'm trying to do with the book really is to flip that pyramid. So not so that physical violence is down the bottom, but just so that it's not up the top, so that we start thinking about the effect on the on the the self-esteem and the dignity of the person before we just think about the effect on their flesh. So things like that, I think, is... That's where we've got a, a while to go, but I think that we're basically, Me Too has really given a lot of victims their dignity back, and it's made people much more interested in hearing women's stories and not just wanting to exile them as inconvenient. Um, it hasn't 100% fixed that, because you still see 
women who bring up these situations, especially in, in corporate workplaces um, or in Hollywood, essentially sort of being exiled from those from those environments. But generally speaking, the public wants to know. So that's there's there's a lot there's a lot of work to do. But Me Too has been an absolutely seismic shift. And even if we don't see a bunch of you know um, sexual harassers in jail, what we have seen is just a, a total restart of a totally new kind of feminism that is good for men and for women. There's something you touched on it there. I guess the the sensationalism of the you know dramatic violent murder or something means that it gets a lot of media coverage and. In recent years, we've seen, say, Jill Ma in Melbourne mm. or uh, Rosie Batty, her son murdered, or even, like, Elliot mm. Rogers, the mass shooting at uh, the mm. university in the US. These get a lot of media coverage, and they are sort of flashpoints for a, a feminist movement against domestic mm. violence, but they're very, they make domestic abuse out to be this very dramatic, one-off violent thing rather than those everyday controlling behaviours, don't they? Mm. Yeah, I guess what, you know, what we're starting to do, and I think what, I mean, Jill Ma, that was the first or one of the first times that you that you really saw, like, the nation coming together around the murder of a woman, just in recent times, not the first time ever, but just, it was it was like this galvanising moment and something, something moved, you know, um, and the media sort of kept on reporting on it. It felt like there was just a cultural movement that was sort of start, starting to brew, um, not for the first time in history, but sort of for the first time in more recent um, history. Then with the murder of Luke Batty, that was just so shocking, the idea that that would happen in public, but then that Rosie would just front up and be so articulate. And, you know, as I say in the book, she also happened to be from what I call the demilitarized zone of the white middle class. So she was kind of that classic, like, every every woman, you know. Um, and because she kept on fronting up to the media and just, kept, and just took on that mantle of campaigner right from the very get-go, it just, it took a moment and it just magnified it. And what that means is, that, so when you have, when you have these major flashpoints, as you called them, um, most recently the murder of Hannah Clark and her three children, what it means is people are paying attention and it's like, what do you do with that attention? You know, and with Hannah Clark, it was really about explaining, well, what is coercive control? Because the point with Hannah was that she didn't think it was abuse because He'd never used physical violence against her. But everything that had happened to her in her relationship, the isolation, the coercion, you know, it was just tick, tick, tick all of the classic behaviours of a coercive controller and a domestic abuser. Um, and yet she didn't know because she, in her mind, pictured domestic violence as physical violence only. So that's what the media has really picked up and run with to say, like, this is a teachable moment. Like, we need to get across to people that these are the big red flags that you need to be aware of in, in your own relationships or in your friends' relationships. And even though the, these horrific murders, yes, they do make it out to look like domestic abuse is this just really dramatic event or incident, but actually sometimes you do need that just to jolt the public out of a type of stupor and to really pay attention, and then you can get in front of them the more subtle, everyday, grey area stuff that so many people are living in. Mm. Yeah, 
the media has really asked a lot of questions about how it reports it, how it talks about it, and you're right, this is an ongoing thing. I'm interested in beyond just reporting domestic violence cases, is there something kind of deep-seated about the stories our society tells about, you know, romantic relationships or or masculinity that that continue to breed this beyond just, you know, when violence is talked about? How does the idea of romance get perverted so frequently in our society? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, there's been a lot said about how the Hollywoodization or the Disneyfication of romance around, you know, obsessive, um, obsessive suitors who will not take no for an answer, who a thousand times a day, you know, and that's all a sign of love, um, or who cannot stand anyone else looking at their at, at um, the, the ones they love or the one they're attracted to. That that's something that that shows that you know that you are desired um, instead of <laughs> what actually once you start to study domestic abuse is just like big red flags. Like it's not so much that, you know, that you can't have a situation where all of those things are present that, that doesn't end up being abusive and, and ends up just sort of settling down into a, a, into a really positive relationship. But if I had a daughter and their partner couldn't stand them being around other men um, and rang obsessively, I would be having a very stern word to them. But, but a lot of women really take that as like, oh, my God, he's so interested in me. And he just, you know, you should see him when other men are around. He just cannot, you know, he can't stand anyone looking at me. It, it can feel like you are the centre of the universe for that person. And that's really appealing. And also remembering that we sort of want to be wrapped up and we weren't like falling in love with someone. We want to be wrapped up in that world. There's something appealing anyway, aside from the stories that we tell, but we don't, I guess, really tell young women especially how healthy relationships form and how you can manage those really strong feelings but still give each other space and respect and and freedom, you know, to be to be two individuals in a relationship instead of being subsumed into it so so completely in a way that can end up then being unhealthy and, and you know, in the worst cases, um, abusive. Yeah, when it comes to movies or love songs or whatever, that kind of, you know, moderate respect for somebody else's autonomy doesn't have the same emotional impact of the obsessive love, does it? No, that's right.
That is the low yo yo there. History of weaponry. It's a lot of great song. That post punk era. A lot of amazing uh, feminist bands from that time. Sort of lost in history. The low yo yo being one of them. You're on the paradigm shift on four triple Z. We have been talking with Jess Hill, author of the book. Look, see what you made me do. Um, about domestic violence and let's go back to the last part of my chat with Jess. Another, I guess another cultural thing that is widespread in our society and that has been commonly linked to uh, domestic violence is addictions, alcohol addiction, gambling addiction. Yeah. Um, are these things that are told often enough as part of the narrative and particularly when it comes to talking about how do we address the issue, you know, is this something that is taken enough into consideration? I think, no, it's not. It's not taken enough into consideration. Uh, you know, my partner is a problem, was a problem gambling counsellor for a long time and, you know, the fact is what you see in, these, in all of these problems like addiction or whatever is you see pain that needs to go somewhere that needs either to be distracted from or it needs to, or there's frustration, there's a feeling of not, not being able to be with yourself. And so you go off and you, you know, you take heroin or you pump money into a pokey, whatever you do to try to transfer that pain. Um, you know, my partner can explain a lot better than I can, but, but essentially it's, it's the same stuff. You know, and yes, we have a lot of like, you know, you see a lot of problem gambling as a, as a problem with perpetrators. You see a lot of porn addiction. You certainly see substance abuse. And I guess what the domestic violence sector has always sort of tried to emphasize is that, is that a lot of the time it's not that these things are causing the violence, it's that they're coexisting with it. But they're sort of, they're, they're all symptoms of the same problem, which is a basic like, you know, essentially, a lack of true self-love. Um, and I'm not talking about sort of narcissistic self-love where, where a guy thinks he's an undiscovered hero and is really grandiose. You know, you look at someone like Donald Trump, who's perhaps the biggest narcissist on the planet, and, you know, you see someone who keeps calling himself, you know, um, the world's biggest genius, you know, but actually is lacking any type of real self-love. You know, and when you have people who are lacking self-love like that, it's they can become destructive to other people or to themselves. And so, essentially, that's what we're trying to deal with. Now, like, there are situations where someone goes into substance abuse, whether it be alcohol addiction, drug addiction, where the, they do become violent in a way that they weren't before. And when that addiction or the substance abuse is taken care of, the violence seems to subside, um, and, and so in those cases, there is a there is a causal relationship. But a lot of the time, you're just seeing a soup of problems, um, and by fixing one, you're not necessarily going to take care of the abuse. The abuse may be happening quite separately to that. Okay. Well, finally, I guess the million dollar question is: you know, we have a a serious problem in our society with domestic abuse. Where do solutions come from at both, a, say, a, a systemic government level or a grassroots private level? From your research, where do you think we need to start on fixing this problem? 
look, you know, I think we need to start by just shoring up the safety net for women when they leave. Um, and that can be, you know, really developing good programs for men. It can be about getting, uh, ensuring that men can be ousted from the home um, and then accommodated elsewhere where they're not just going to be roaming the streets, brewing and getting more and more angry. Um, it can be about making sure that the refuge system is fully funded so that women are not being put in hotels in the first instance or, or put in boarding houses or unsafe accommodation. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the, the community legal centres that so often give women legal representation are dramatically underfunded. There's, so there's, there's really basic things that are literally about dollars <laughs> that need to be taken care of. And then there are more complex issues, like how do we actually start to go about addressing this? And what I've seen is really... Is where you get a community to really own the problem. And when I say community, it doesn't need to be small. It can be a city or it can be a smaller a, a town. Um, but I've, and I've profiled both in the last chapter of the book. I look at a city of 100,000 and a town of 2,500 um, of Burke in New South Wales. And essentially what they did without knowing it, they, they both did essentially the same thing. And that was to reach out, basically, firstly, to really um, understand what was going on in their community, to get the data on who was doing what and when was it happening and, and, and where was it happening, and then to say, we're going to make perpetrators of domestic abuse visible. You know, we are going to be watching you and we're not just going to wait for your victims to come to us. We're, we're going to really bring the community in to, to keep eyes on these people. Um, but most importantly, was to reach out to these perpetrators and say, we love and respect you and we want you to be a functioning part of our community. Um, we will give you the help that you need in whatever way, whether it be about substance abuse or employment or whatever it is that you feel is going wrong in your life or whether you need trauma or grief counselling um, or just support to change your behaviour, we'll be here. But if you don't change your behaviour... And we're now working together with the justice system and our priority is um, facing domestic abuse. So if you don't change, the, the, the justice system is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And so though, and those strategies where you basically, you don't just bring in a justice system response and you don't just bring in a rehabilitation response, but you do both, that's what seems to work because in, in both Burke and in High Point, North Carolina, which is a city in the States, you know, these responses that were fully community-owned, that had very close collaboration between the justice system and the community sectors, they saw massive reductions in domestic homicide. They saw huge reductions in re-victimisation rates. Um, and essentially, I mean, in, in High Point, North Carolina, they cut the domestic homicide rate by two-thirds. And the only there was only, I think, for in, a, in about five or six years, one homicide occurred with someone that they had been engaged with and the rest were people either coming through town or that hadn't come above the radar. Um, you know, so what they've sort of figured is that this response works. So I sort of think, I mean, as much as we absolutely need government involved, um, communities do have to take this on, you know, at the council level or at the broader, at the broader city level and really start to own it because it's actually... Domestic abuse, it may seem like it's just this sort of, this 
individual problem. But actually what it does is it filters out to so many areas of our community, to homelessness, to health, to, to drug and alcohol, to mental illness. Um, all of that stuff is like is rotating and circulating around domestic abuse. And that's why, as a community, we need to confront it rather than just waiting for a federal government or a state government to take care of it for us. Okay, thanks very much, Jess, for chatting with us today. And your book, See What You Made Me Do, is available for people to read? Yeah. All good bookstores? <laughs> All good bookstores. Um, there's, yeah, online. Okay, thanks, Jess. Thanks, Andy. That is Jess Hill there, um, author of the book, See What You Made Me Do, which you can read, and also a number of uh long-form articles over the years, investigations into domestic violence. Um, It's a pretty heavy topic and one that affects a lot of people in a lot of ways. A lot of children have been through that, women um, and men, of course, have been in abusive relationships at times as well. Um, If it is something that um, is affecting you currently, there are places where you can seek out help and 1-800-RESPECT is a phone number to call. Uh, you can get counselling and connect you to services. And from there, there are other things. Of course, for people like myself, I, wouldn't, I haven't been affected by uh, domestic violence and um, I haven't perpetrated it. But as, as a man in this society, there are questions to ask and I think... Um, it's an important job as well of talking about how does, why is this such an epidemic in our society? What is it about the way our society constructs relationships, uh, the way it constructs masculinity that has led us to this point and what can we all do to try to change this? Um, it's a widespread problem. It's not an individual problem. It's society's problem and that makes it all of us, all of our responsibility and all of us to be part of making the change in the world that we want to see, which is, of course, what the paradigm shift is about. And so um, let's try to do that. Uh, Let's go out with one last song, a bit of a modern classic from Stella Donnelly. This is Boys Will Be Boys. (laughs) 